Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Jewel Hall Show podcast today on the pod. Ancestral Lands Chief Counselor Hal Salem joins us as Squamish Nation announces major developments on its 350 acres of land from the North Shore to the Sunshine Coast. Plus, from fees on phone bills, concert tickets to airline baggage, how successful will Ottawa be on its war on junk fees? And we ask, should government penalize oil companies for making too much money? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's jump in today. The Squamish Nation announced it plans to develop 350 acres of land stretching from the North Shore to Squamish to the Sunshine Coast. Now, the projects uh, have the potential to reshape not only uh, the Squamish Nation itself, but also the communities surrounding the developments as well. Uh, The Squamish Nation says the developments will include residential, commercial, and industrial developments as well. Now, the four specific properties they have mentioned include a property along Marine Drive near the Lionsgate Bridge and Park Royal Mall in West Vancouver. It includes Linwood Marina near the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge in North Vancouver as well. And another parcel of land sitting at the southern end, southern end of Squamish. And, of course, another piece of land is in Gibson's Landing, about 3.8 kilometers south of the Langdale Ferry Terminal. Now, the Squamish Nation has previously announced the development of Sinoc, which will uh, comprise of 11 towers of up to seven, 57 stories on a 10-acre site on the south side of the Burrard Street Bridge. There's a lot to discuss after today's announcement. Joining me now is El Salem, Squamish Nation Council Chair. Welcome, El Salem. Hi. Good to hear your voice. Lots to talk about here. Uh, when it comes to these properties that were announced today in regards to your development, why this particular? Why has the council chosen this direction now? There's a number of um, opportunities that are, are on the table for us, but also um, just really, I think, good governance around how we manage these assets, both from a community standpoint so that we are creating the long-term sort of infrastructure to support the growth of the community, things like schools, parks, clinics, elder centers, and, and more. Um, and then figuring out also what are the economic drivers that we can create that are then going to be able to pay for those amenities. And what we've experienced, especially since we first announced the Sanok development a number of years ago, is mm-hmm. it's increased the sort of um, attention and interest from third parties to come and work with us. And so over the last number of years, we've received a lot of sort of third party proposals from different companies who you know come to us and say we we would like to partner with you on the development of your lands and we have a proposal for you, um, and so it put us in a position where we're often being reactive. We're not actually setting the vision for our lands. We're not engaging our community on what they would like to see for those lands, and then developing sort of a, a land use strategy. So this is a, a one year moratorium on receiving any thir- sort of third party proposals, mm-hmm. which will then allow for our staff to then explore what is the potential of these lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in regards to this announcement, a big announcement for your community today and, and, and neighboring communities as well. So what happens next? What's the next step after today's announcement? Do you start consulting uh, internally in regards to how each bit of land, each uh, property that you have will be developed? Is that consultation occurring with your community? Is that next? 
There's a number of steps that will come next. Um, one is uh, our economic uh, development company, which is the sort of arm's length company of the Squamish Nation government, um, is sort of going to be leading a lot of the work, working with uh, the nation as well. And they'll be engaging the services of a, of a, a firm uh, that can come in with the right expertise to help lead a lot of this sort of land use exploration. And then as we go through each of the sites, there'll be a number of studies that will have to be done on infrastructure needs or capacities, what is possible currently, what would need to be upgraded, where where is their alignment with other sort of priorities. You know, for example, uh, TransLink and the province have put a lot of funding into the exploration of rapid transit across Bread Inlet, mm-hmm. you know, rapid transit across Bread Inlet, all the way to Park Royal, to Lonsdale Key, through to Second Arrows, would have a huge benefit for the North Shore just as it is. But we add in the land use planning the nation's doing, and we can just sort of maximize some of these opportunities. So there's a exploration piece, there's sort of a site feasibility piece, and then eventually we'll get to a point where there's some concepts, and then we'll start engaging with the community on um, you know, reaction, thoughts, opportunities, and then eventually the public at, at large will start to be brought in to hear about um, some of the explorations that we're looking at. Of the 350 acres that uh, could potentially be developed, how much of that is on the North Shore? The, I would say the vast majority of it is on the North Shore. Um, there's only uh, the Sunshine Coast site, I think, is only about 30 acres, and the Squamish Valley sites are maybe 40 or so acres. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you're, you know, you're looking at 250 to 300 acres approximately that are primarily on the North Shore, mostly around uh, the Capilano River area and the Seymour River area. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, you know, and most of the Squamish nation's own population lives on the North Shore. But also, as we've seen um, through Canadian census data and other sources, the North Shore also hasn't been growing um, that much in terms of population and, and has a huge housing uh, shortage as well. So I think that there's a lot of alignment coming from some of these things, but most of our lands are um, within the North Shore area. Now, when I think about your property along Marine Drive near Landscape Bridge and the Park Royal Mall in West Vancouver, uh, it's a you know a huge strip of land uh, right on the water, uh, a huge potential there for residential development. Uh, would you want to do something like Sinoc to to maximize the space that you have and uh, the challenges of housing that continues to, to to remain for the lower mainland? And of course, wanting to get a good return for that development as well. Would you envision something like Sinoc, um, which is more towers, a greater density? Is that something you would uh, sort of look at in, in regards to residential, or is, or is there even a potential for some sort of commercial industrial there? Or would you want to leverage the residential side more so in that area? Yeah, I would say that, you know, one of the the things that we're going to do over this uh, year is really take a lot of the lessons from what we learned through the development of Sanok, all the way from pre-development and now into construction. And when we first approached, you know, the Sanok development as an example, you know, we initially announced 3,000 units on 10 acres of land. And then about a year later, we came back out to the public and said, actually, we've done some more investigation into what we think is possible here. And we increased it to 6,000 units um, from 3,000. And that really came about as a conversation of, like, what is possible on this site? What is going to um, help us achieve a number of different values, like, around livability? You know, there's a limit to how much you can put on a piece of land because you have to think about all the infrastructure needs and the livability needs. What is the built form? What is the transportation? What is the infrastructure? What is the culture of this site? So I think those things are all going to be part of um, 
the lens in which we explore some of these sites. Some might be high-dense development and residential, and some might be more commercial or industrial. Um, There are some of the lands that we are exploring that are constrained in terms of what they can actually do and and, and largely um, are better suited for industrial, so that's why we're going to explore that. Mm -hmm. But it's also, I think, positioning ourselves into the next century as we look at how, you know, BC's economy is changing, for example, and and, and potentially moving away from a, a heavy reliance on natural resource uh, royalties and revenues and moving towards sort of the new economy and where that's going to go. And I think industrial lands are going to be a key uh, factor in that. Part of what you're doing in any organization is obviously you have to develop uh, your land uh, and and build an economic base for your community. Um, that takes a specific amount of expertise patience, consultation. You actually have to build a system and a process and and, uh, and capacity within your own uh, local government to be able to take on a project this size. Uh, compared to 10 years ago to today, I'm going to assume um, just the governance side of your nation is completely different. Go on, speak to me a little bit about just internally how you've had to build all of yeah. this infrastructure uh, and not just a physical but people yeah. and capacity just to have this conversation today you know it's a really good point and i think uh, you know I, I i'm very appreciative as an elected leader with my council of the work that previous elected leadership has done to you know set the stage that we're just carrying on that legacy and there has been a lot of work over the last number of years to improve the good governance of the nation, to create, um, you know, implement best practices around governance so that we're upholding ourselves to the highest standards, that there is consistency in the transparency and accountability mechanisms, um, and that we're allowing not sort of political belief to drive business decisions, but to allow the, you know, best analysis and the best policy and the best research to drive the land use decisions. And and so we've built in systems to help protect ourselves and to protect the nation so that we are evaluating things through the right lenses and that we are letting um, the research and, and the expertise guide our decision-making. And then I think um, further than that, we've also been able to build a lot of capacity. And so, like, you know, one of the things that the Squamish Nation is very proud of is over the last three years, and previously, but more so in the last three years, we've made huge investments into post-secondary education for our people. We pay for a living allowance, a monthly living allowance, tuition, and books and supplies for any of our any of our people who apply to go to post-secondary. And we fund between 140 to 160 students every year in post-secondary. That has then translated into our people coming back to work for our community in not just, you know, entry level jobs at like flagging or, you know, mm-hmm. construction, but also through the entire value chain, all the way to the CEO of our economic development company, to the executive vice president of real estate for that company, um, throughout the, the sort of structure of our government. So we see that investment ha- um, paying off now. And then we're also bringing in, you know, the best and brightest to come and work for us. And so like on economic development, and and more so real estate, in the last year alone, we have um, increased our staff capacity on real estate development um, to over around, I think it's seven or eight staff now. 
um, whereas a year ago we only had one. So, you know, there's these types of changes that have come about that I think are, are a big reason why we're now ready to embark on some of these more ambitious projects. We are speaking to Hill Salem. He's the Squamish Nation Council Chair, and today the Squamish Nation announced they plan to develop 350 acres uh, of land, and as I said earlier, stretching from the North Shore to Squamish to the Sunshine Coast. Uh, probably the uh, most high-profile pieces of property would be uh, near Marine Drive, near the Lionsgate Bridge and Park Royal Mall in West Vancouver, and of course, Linwood Marina near the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge in North Vancouver. Uh, 350 acres in total. Uh, the rest is in Squamish and in Gibson's Landing, about uh, 3.8 kilometers south of the Langdale Ferry Terminal, but about two-thirds will be, if not a little bit more, will be uh, on the no sure. Now, Salem, you uh, touched on this a little bit in our, prior to the break, but uh, how important was it to for you to just put a moratorium on new development right now for at least one year uh, before you move forward uh, as you work on these projects? What's really exciting, I think, for the Squamish Nation is that we're able to now see the value of our land recognized in real terms and that the the role that First Nations can play as a partner in sort of business uh, development is really, I think, being recognized. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we look at the opportunity to develop First Nations lands, we bring a level of certainty to partnerships, whether it's investment, whether it's financing um, or, or, or things like that, because we're going to be in it for the long haul. We're not going to go anywhere. We're not going to, um, you know, abandon these projects after a few years uh, or sell them off or any kind of thing like that. So what that also means is that there's a lot of interest. There's, a, there's not a lot of uh, land opportunities at this scale throughout the lower mainland. Um, and we, we already own the land. And um, we also, as we learned with Sanak, bring a lot of value in terms of the speed at which we're able to move on development, the, the pace at which we are able to rezone our lands relative to neighboring jurisdictions. And also um, the the scale of density that we can we can bring to the table. So all of those things create a mixture where we, as a, an indigenous government, are bringing a lot of value to the conversation, which has inevitably um, created a, a response where there's a lot of industry uh, companies, um, other other development companies, other um, uh, business people out there who want to partner with us. But we haven't had an opportunity to really step back and look at one, what is the feasibility of some of our high priority lands? Um, what is the ideal sort of development uh, for those lands? What are the sort of wish list items that our community wants um, for our community in terms of amenities? And then can we use some of the economic development to pay for those things? So all of those things have sort of been at play. And the moratorium came about as a recommendation from our staff to say, we want to put a, a pause on just receiving any of these third-party proposals. We just want a chance to be able to develop our own vision, working with our community and our leadership to uh, examine these. And then that way, we can come out of this with a clear vision of what we want, what we need, and how we, can, how we think we can do it. And then invite in you know, industry partners and development partners to potentially come and partner with us on the development of some of those lands from a position of strength and from a position of clarity. And, you know, part of the response to that, too, is talking to some of our development partners is they're actually encouraging us and supporting us to do this because us coming to the table with a much clearer vision Mm -hmm. means that we can move quickly on those things because then that's really apparent to both parties what the nation wants. Salem, thank you so much for your time today. Look forward to having you in the studio soon so we can uh, get an update on Sunak as well. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Well, spring is here, meaning animals are certainly on the move looking for easy uh, sources of food. Our next guest is recommending homeowners and businesses to spend a few minutes checking around their properties to, uh, to help to keep them and their community safe when it comes to wildlife. Joining me now is Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Fur Bears. Leslie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. Well, it is uh, an interesting topic because um, we often hear about this interaction with wildlife and people, and especially in the urban areas more and more as the city continues to grow and expand. How big of a challenge uh, has this uh, become uh, you know, each spring in regards to wildlife and just um, the coexistence with people? It's always a challenge, and as you indicated, we're, we live in growing centres. Uh, Vancouver was carved out of a rainforest, and so most residents know we can expect wildlife. Wildlife live here, um, including animals like black bears, uh, coyotes, cougars, which can be unsettling, you know, for some homeowners. Um, and so there's a real obligation for us to share the landscape. And there's a few times a year when it's really important for people to have a little more patience and tolerance. And it's also a great opportunity for us to educate ourselves on what can attract wildlife uh, to our homes and businesses and what can we do to prevent any of those negative wildlife encounters. So in regards to, you mentioned a few animals there, but which animals are more active this time of the year, uh, this spring? Most of them are are quite active. So spring is a busy time for a lot of wild families. Uh, Wild animals are on the move. They're looking to set up their homes, their dens, their nests. Many animals are looking for food. Uh, Black bears, on the West Coast, black bears don't always hibernate right through just because of the milder temperatures. Mm -hmm. But we should be seeing an increase um, in black bear sightings. That's very normal this time of year. Uh, The cubs are also uh, waking up and traveling with mum. Coyotes, uh, many coyotes have their dens right now with uh, their uh, uh, babies. And, And so... People that are frequenting the parks, for example, Stanley Park, need to be aware that, you know, coyotes are on the move. And so it's quite normal to see these these animals, especially this time of year, as um, just like us, they're raising their families and uh, just trying to get by. Mm-hmm. What precautions should homeowners and businesses take this, this time of year in and around their property? Mm-hmm. So the number one rule for coexistence is managing attractant. And attractant is usually a food source of some kind that brings animals in closer contact with people. So that could mean garbage, recycling, organic waste. Um, all of those things should be kept in hard-sided lock containers and only put out on the curb on the morning of pickup. Um, other things could be, um, you know, you want to ensure that your barbecue and your grills are clean, the drip trays are clean, uh, any bird feeders, those can be removed now. Spring is a great time. There's lots of food out there available for birds. There's no need to have bird feeders at this time. And then ensuring our sheds, our garages, and vehicles are secure. So animals from mice to bears will find their way into unsecured locations if there's any kind of food source that's available. And then lastly, it's worth mentioning our pets. Uh, mm. So reminding residents not to put pet food outside and making sure our dogs are on a leash, that we're staying on trail. And if we have cats, uh, a great solution for cats, especially those who like to go outdoors, are catios, which are um, enclosed spaces that make it safe for kitty and 
a lot safer for animals like wild birds. How long have, did you say catios been around? Catios have been around for quite a while. They've gained in popularity, I think, on some social media channels. Um, It's a bit of a do-it-yourself project, but it's really fascinating what you can make. So they tend to uh, be these large screened-in porches or enclosures with multiple um, shelves or platforms that Mm -hmm. cats can jump on and travel from. And then again, they're outside, but because it's an enclosed space, it gives a little bit of a barrier there to wildlife, which is really important. Cats are responsible for killing uh, a lot of babies and causing a lot of problems and chaos in the natural world. So everything from, you know, mice and birds up to, you know, baby rabbits, baby squirrels, and other infant wildlife. Hmm. Um, it, this is a tough one to answer, I think. It just... At the end of the day, we've encroached so much as this city grows, and I use Vancouver as an example, but many other cities as well. I mean, are we losing something in regards to just the the encroachment of human beings on these animals uh, in regards to the impact we have on animals? Because, you know, it's, it's all well and good to be prepared and mindful and respectful. The reality is suburbs continue to expand. There's greater density further and further out. One only has to look at some of the... Um, the communities out in, in, in some of these um, suburbs. Uh, I look at Coquitlam, I look at the North Shore, mm-hmm. many others as well. I don't want to focus on any mm-hmm. one community, but our growth continues and the insatiable need for land continues. I mean, it seems that it's not them, it's us at the end of the day in regards to the impact we're having on their habitat. You're a smart man. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people share those concerns. Um, humans absolutely have a negative impact or can have an extreme negative impact on the natural world. We know that a lot of our recreational activities, our industry displaces animals, um, can directly harm the environment, eliminate important habitat, and just poor planning. You know, with our cities, every time a highway goes in, that decreases habitat and divides up spaces, and and it it puts animals in a situation where they're on the move and. Um, trying to settle into new locations, which may or may not always go over well. But, I, you know, I, I really think that there's some practical, easy things people can do. And you also, just in your comment there, give a lot of consideration, you know, for maybe we do take things a step further and get more active in our city's planning process, join committees at the municipal level, advocate for um, green spaces and more wildlife corridors, uh, wildlife overpasses are something that is gaining in popularity, really interesting. Mm-hmm. And just ensuring that our bylaws and policies are, are giving animals a chance. Um, I always think it's such a gift to live in this province and all the animals that we share the landscape with. And every year, hundreds, if not thousands, of animals are killed as a direct result of human negligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's everything from people deliberately feeding wildlife to trying to take a selfie to driving carelessly and not, you know, paying attention. Um, there's so many unfortunate consequences to our behavior. Yeah, um, no, you're absolutely so right. It's, it's a time for my it's a time for mindfulness. That's what I'm saying. No, I think you I think you I think you nailed it right on the head. I really appreciate uh, your comments. Thanks so much for your time today, Leslie. 
Let's talk about junk fees. You know, those are the fees that are tacked on to the initial price of a product or service that hide or inflate the total cost. You've all paid them. Just think about that for a second. Baggage fees. There's the cancellation fees, cell phone surcharges or service fees on concert tickets. Now, the government of Canada, of course, announced their intention to crack down on junk fees as part of the 2023 budget, which was announced yesterday. Um, And it sounds great makes a flashy headline, uh, but it, that's all it is right now. There has to be a commitment there in regards to doing so. Now, the budget, budget itself, announced yesterday, doesn't allocate any additional funds for uh, the uh, uh, for going after those junk fees. The government instead says it pledges, to, pledges new legislative amendments to reduce junk fees uh, in industries ranging in, from telecom, that would be cell phones, to shipping, to air travel. So it sounds good. They will, they will have to bring in amendments or laws to, of course, uh, have an impact if that were to go ahead. Of course, the, the um, Canadian government is uh, following uh, the lead of the U.S. government, which also wants to reduce junk fees for concert fees, airline ticket fees, and early service uh, cancellation fees as well. But can it be done? Can it be meaningful for those of us who obviously don't want to be paying those excessive baggage fees? Or in some cases, when you're going to a concert and you get hit with all those service fees, joining me now to talk about the issue of junk fees, particularly on ticket services when it comes to concerts, is Kingsley Bailey, General Manager of VancouverTicket.com. Kingsley, thanks for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. And I just want to start off with one word that's going to get all your listeners interested. Predatory. Predatory, predatory. This whole problem starts when when you have a, uh, a group of individuals that are greedy and they have an opportunity to take advantage of the consumer. And until there's legislation in place, and I can go into this with you, mm-hmm. there is, it's not going to stop. We need to have transparency and and as long as that's not going to happen, there is no way we're going to continue to talk about this till the cows come home. Yeah, what what amazed me about yesterday uh, was that they announced this thing, but it's like you know these things have been going. This has been going on for what ten, fifteen years for baggage fees or service fees. Uh, you cancel yourself when you get nailed for that. All these little fees that are there. So let's. Uh, so I understand needing legislation to go after this. So let's just say I'm, I'm still relevant and hip from a different era, or for <laughs> for the present moment, and I. I wanted to go to Drake for for a moment. If I buy a ticket for Drake, what kind of things would I get dinged with right now? Well, first off, there's, they're only going to release 10% of the tickets to, to give an artificial demand, like there's a huge demand, but how can you really justify a, a term dynamic pricing when you've only released 10% of the seats? Hmm. It's predatory. So first off, they've got you thinking it's, there's such a huge demand for these tickets, and so all of a sudden you're paying exorbitant prices for those seats. So it, 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 the way it starts, it, it's impossible for you to really come up with an exact number on how it works. Um, oh, I think we just lost you, Kingsley. There? No, no, you didn't lose. I'm just right here. I just had somebody walk in. All right. So uh, you were just you were just talking about the, the predatory nature of this. So the only solution in your mind, it really is legislation that just out just fundamentally makes it illegal to charge service fees. Yeah. Right now, right now, it's the wild, wild west. They can get away with and do whatever they want. 
And realistically, this is predatory. The consumers has been taken advantage of, and it's continued to be taken advantage of. And you can also look at it, it touches everything. You can look at shrinkflation. It, you know, all of a sudden, they've got record numbers of all these corporates uh, making all these record numbers of dollars, and they're saying that it's because of uh, there's limitations on the transportation. Uh, there's a shortage here. There's a shortage there. For some reason, there's always seems to be an excuse on why it goes up. But all of a sudden, when you realize that hey, that shortages, there should be no shortage anymore because we're back to normal. But the prices don't go down. Or what happens is it's shrinkflation. You're getting you're getting less for more. Mm-hmm. Um, how did it start in, in 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 the ticket business? Like when did it start? Where where somebody's came up with the idea of a service fee and just said, you know what, this we can get away with this. Well, I, I can't give you the exact number when it started, but I can say this much is when Ticketmaster went digital, they did not get rid of the service charges. The service charges stayed, and and I know that um, I had a couple of. Um, uh, individuals contacting me and asking me, well, why is there still a service charge when there's no more service? And I guess they reached out to Ticketmaster and they were unable to, uh, to respond back to them because there is no right answer for them. It would not look good in their eyes, in the public's eyes, and the answer they're going to give. But if there's no service, you can't charge a service fee. And realistically, and it's unfortunate, but they've been getting away with it, and they're going to continue to get away with it until our government can legislate uh, changes, fundamental changes. And I'm curious, Jazz, if, if you want, when you're getting ready to get back and you uh, make this part of your mandate, you will be reelected. <laughs> Thanks. I'll remember that. Out of curiosity, uh, this recent announcement of, for the Drake concert, why are ticket prices so high? Is it just a question of d- demand here? We can, they can get away with that much? Well, again, is we don't really know exactly how many tickets came on sale for the general public. So if we don't know that, how can they justify dynamic pricing? So it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's really difficult to really, really explain it, the cart before the horse or whatever. But if you don't know, A, how can you come up with a plan B and this is what's going to happen? And, and that's the problem. If there's transparency, dynamic pricing would fall by the wayside. Yeah. Absolutely. Kingsley, thanks for your time. No, Jazz, I appreciate it. Anytime you have any more questions about this world, I'd be happy to help you. <laughs> thanks so much. Well, we spent a lot of time on this program talking about foreign interference, whether it be China or Russia. We spent most of our time focusing on um, the interference or alleged interference attempts uh, in regards to our federal election in 2019 and 2021. There's been obviously a lot of conversation about uh, potential foreign interference with the Ontario government. Well, about 20 minutes ago, the Vancouver Sun moved a story uh, which uh, says that the BC Liberals are now asking for a review into foreign interference at the legislature here after the Chinese consulate uh, complained about a visit of a high-profile Tibetan, uh, Tibetan independence official. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this story is Todd Stone, the BC Liberal House leader. Todd, thank you for joining us. Happy to be with you, Jeff. So, walk me through uh, in regards to this story. When did this uh, alleg- when did this allegedly happen, and how did the BC Liberals learn about it? Well, uh, I'll just be a walk you through the, the timeline here. Uh, uh, MLA Teresa Watts, she's one of our our, our, our MLAs, uh, represents a, a Richmond riding. She uh, uh, held a uh, organized a Buddhist cultural event uh, in uh, in Victoria here in the legislature back on February 27th, and and uh, it involved a couple hundred members of the Buddhism community, 
including a whole bunch of, uh, of monks, uh, Buddhist monks. And uh, uh, there were monks representing all of the, the, the major uh, schools of thought in, in the, the Buddhist tradition, including uh, Tibetan monks. Uh, the, uh, the event was attended by uh, Premier David Eby and myself, a whole bunch of, uh, of other MLAs. And uh, we, uh, you know, it was a really, it was a really, a really good event. And the whole po- purpose of it was uh, MLA Watt uh, uh, wanted to, uh, uh, she, she had introduced a private members bill earlier that day to actually create a, a Buddhist cultural uh, day, uh, you know, as, as an official proclamation in, in British Columbia, which, as you know, is just a ceremonial uh, uh, reality. But it, it's, it's very meaningful, uh, mm-hmm. particularly uh, you know, in, in uh, different uh, different um, cultural organizations and, and and so forth. So we did that event, and uh, uh, during the event, uh, Teresa Watt asked uh, Premier Eby if um, he would uh, commit to a proclamation uh, to declare uh, a Buddhist cultural day, and he said, yes, I, uh, I, I commit to doing that. So that was met with a tremendous amount of applause. Um, fast forward, uh, uh, the Attorney General's Ministry is the one that um, that pulls those proclamations together. Uh, that's being worked on. Uh, we then thought uh, that it would make sense to invite um, all of these Buddhist uh, community members back, including all of the monks, back to the legislature into the Hall of Honor, mm-hmm. and uh, and have them, um, you know, uh, celebrate with us. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, the the, the proclamation. Uh, and so uh, that's where it, it, you know, things started to get a bit odd. Uh, we, uh, we we made that 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 request for that subsequent meeting, and uh, the uh, there's a, a, a department within the the legislature reports into the speaker's office. It's called the Parliamentary Education Office. Um, uh, one of the staffers there asked us if the Tibetan monks would be part of the uh, delegation for the second meeting. We said, of course, they were here uh, the first one. They will be here for the second one. Uh, we were then uh, uh, advised. Uh, that um, uh, from the same office that our request uh, to hold this event uh, would be uh, had been denied, and uh, we, we subsequently uh, learned that uh, there had been uh, uh, some uh, some uh, t- Tibetan uh, officials uh, uh, that had visited the legislature a few weeks earlier, and uh, uh, that that uh, that uh, visit had triggered. A, 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 a stern uh, or a, a letter from the Chinese consulate in Vancouver uh, to the speaker's office here in the legislature, uh, expressing significant uh, concern with um, uh, with that Tibetan visit here in the legislature. Basically, uh, you know, the Chinese consulate was not happy that they were uh, that they were welcomed here in the legislature. So, uh, you know, we we stood back and, and looked at all of this and, and thought, surely to goodness, uh, we are not um, allowing. Uh, you know, any foreign government, that the, the Chinese government or, or any other one for that matter, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, dictate or influence, uh, you know, who is able to set foot in the people's house here in the B.C. legislature. Uh, and um, and so we, uh, uh, we, we decided to, um, uh, to, to write a, a letter to the speaker uh, today to outline our concerns on that, uh, to identify some inconsistencies um, in comments made between um, different individuals uh, involved in this uh, and to really try to get to the bottom of uh, why would uh, would the Tibetan monks have uh, have not been uh, initially, or why would the event not have initially been allowed to go ahead uh, if Tibetan monks were were part of the delegation, uh, and, and if and if that was indeed the case, uh, were, that they weren't the event shouldn't go ahead because of that reason. Um, was that linked to the Chinese consulate uh, expressing their concerns about uh, about Tibetans uh, generally uh, visiting the uh, the BC legislature? So these are serious matters, and and we think that. Uh, there's uh, a lot of answers that need to be provided here, and, and beyond that, a broader review 
of uh, you know what does foreign influence look like uh, with respect to British Columbia's institutions, and uh, are we as best protected as we possibly can be uh, with that in mind? And just to clarify, in the article, it does say the decision, the original decision by the Speaker's office to not allow a delegation of Buddhist monks was reversed, but only after post-media started making inquiries. That, that is correct. I mean, that just seems a bit convenient, frankly. Uh, it's probably the best word that I can I can use. Uh, uh, and and uh, I, I don't think that uh, that should let anyone off the hook on this. I think there still are some important questions uh, that have been posed uh, that we have put forward that I think need to be answered. Uh, we're we're obviously uh, pleased that uh, this, the speaker's office seems to have reversed uh, the original rejection and has has subsequently granted permission for this uh, for this next event with the Tibetan monks to, to be included. Uh, but it, uh, you know, Jazz, it, it it deeply deeply concerns us uh, that. Uh, uh, you know that that uh, an expression of, um, of of frustration or uh, you know God forbid uh, you know any 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 um, you know very assertive direction uh, that that may have been contained in in correspondence from the Chinese consulate uh, in Vancouver to the to the Legislative Assembly about the the, the visit of Tibetans uh, to the legislature. Um, uh, you know, if, if indeed this is what uh, what has happened, uh, I mean, this should concern all British Columbians. Uh, mm-hmm. Our institutions um, uh, are open uh, for all British Columbians, all Canadians and people from all around the world, as long as you obey the law uh, here. And, you know, everybody uh, must be welcomed here and there should be no uh, uh, no uh, uh, opportunity ever for foreign governments uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, to influence uh, what can or cannot happen within the institutions here in British Columbia. Now, the uh, I only have about a minute left here, Todd. But you had asked uh, the Liberals had asked uh, for this to be looked at by an all-party committee. Is that a decision that the, the Speaker and his office would be uh, a part of, or would that be a conversation between the Liberals, the New Democrats, and and the Greens? Well, uh, there is a uh, uh, what's called the Legislative Assembly Management Committee, which uh, oversees the operations of the Legislative Assembly on all facets of the operation here in the building, as well as the overall precinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, what uh, what we're asking the speaker to do is to, uh, and in fact, I will be uh, you know making the official request at, at our next meeting, uh, which has not yet to be to be scheduled. But I've asked the speaker to schedule that as soon as possible. We'll be making the request that we add onto the agenda. Uh, an opportunity for uh, for discussion of this um, you know this particular issue. I, I want answers to what actually happened here, and, and I want to you know I want to be satisfied that there was no uh, interference and influence from the Chinese consulate over decisions relating to the Tibetan monks uh, visiting here. And beyond that, uh, I want the sergeant at arms and, and the security apparatus in this building to brief MLAs uh, from all parties as part of this the Slamsey committee on, um, you know, uh, where can we make further improvements to make sure that uh, we are better uh, prepared for, for the, uh, the the realities that, um, uh, you know, foreign governments do try to meddle in in, uh, in the affairs of uh, institutions and, frankly, elections in other nations, and that uh, we shouldn't uh, just stand idly by and be naive and think it doesn't happen here. We need yeah. to be better prepared. Absolutely. And uh, the fact that, uh, number one, a letter was sent by uh, by the, uh, the Chinese consulate, uh, and number two, that the fact that the Speaker's office has reversed the original decision after Post Media called should tell every British Columbian that uh, this doesn't pass the smell test. So I look forward to seeing what happens over the next few weeks. Todd, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jazz. Uh, appreciate the opportunity.
During the Broadway plan debate last June, the previous city council endorsed an amendment in support of adding new protected bike lanes along the length of Broadway, timed with the completion of the SkyTrain's Millennium Line Broadway extension under the street. Now the city of Vancouver this week has come back to council uh, recommending against the idea. There are, of course, plans for wider sidewalks, for pedestrians and patios along the revamped uh, Broadway line. Last week on this show, we had Bridget Anderson on, 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 on this program. Uh, she is, of course, the uh, presidency of the Metro Vancouver Board of Trade. She uh, came on this program, basically said, look, uh, we have, we already have a bike lane on 10th and there's also lane, uh, lane of course, uh, available on 7th and 8th uh, that we need to move goods and services along the Broadway corridor and there's going to be wider pedestrian uh, sidewalks, of course, and uh, room for potentially patios as well and that we do not need any more bike lanes. So there's been significant conversation uh, on this program from elected officials and others uh, for and against. And I wanted to bring uh, our next guest uh, on the show as well. He's been very much connected to city politics. Uh, he was former co-chair of the Vancouver Renters Advisory Committee uh, and has been engaged in this process from day one. has been very active in speaking, out, especially for young families, on the issue of density, housing, and of course, livability. Uh, Kit Souter, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. So uh, I saw uh, something you had posted on social media um, a few days ago. Uh, you have been a supporter of ABC Vancouver, the majority uh, uh, council at the moment. Uh, and, but they have certainly come out and said, look, they believe in uh, movement of goods and people along Broadway. They said, look, we already have a, a bicycle lane on 10th. Uh, we don't need one on Broadway. One of their uh, councillors was on this show just last Friday saying that. Uh, you, however, have come out in support of bike lanes on Broadway. Walk me through why you think we need them. Yeah, so just, I mean, I'm a longtime supporter of Ken and the ABC Slate um, and a big fan of the work that they've been doing uh, in their first six months. And I, I hope to continue to be a big supporter of theirs. And I, I think that I will be. Um, this is just a matter of, of one um, difference of opinion on policy. But I think that um, the mayor and council might be missing the opportunity and being more concerned about the costs, right? And I think that that is where uh, Bridget Anderson and GV Bob's concerns come from as well, right? There's the concern about the impact on um, an already tight economy, the impact on recovering businesses after the course of the pandemic, and what it means to potentially shake things up on Broadway. But I'll just be blunt, Jazz. Um, I remember sitting in the Cactus Club on Broadway during the uh, last um, genuine Canucks playoff run, uh, which is more than a decade ago now. (laughs) And uh, it sucked then, uh, sitting beside six lanes of traffic. And I walked down Broadway to a dentist appointment last Monday, and it sucks now. Um, And Broadway can't be a great street, which is what the proposal is. The Broadway plan proposal is to transform Broadway into a cultural and commercial center for the entire city as Vancouver's second downtown. And um, if we continue to prioritize all forms of vehicle traffic, all forms of street parking um, along that entire corridor, it can never achieve that because it's simply too much space that's dedicated to exhaust, to uh, braking, to honking, to frustrated drivers as they're trying to get from A to B. Um, so the solution that needs to be weighed and considered, and that I really do hope that council and the mayor adopt, is that they go with the option two proposal that's currently in the mobility lane plan, um, a proposal that was asked for by three of the incumbent ABC councillors uh, and the Greens and one city on council. They all got reelected. They all voted to have this option provided to them. 
And um, all it would be is you substantively remove street parking along Broadway, which, quite frankly, shouldn't be there in the first place, because anyone who has to drive during rush hour knows that the worst people to be around are people who don't know how to parallel park. And so creating spaces for people to slow down traffic for sometimes multiple minutes, cause traffic jams, frustrate people, resulting in road rage, is the worst thing to have on a commuter corridor. So what you do is you bump out um, the space into those parking lanes. You Mm -hmm. allocate time and jurisdiction to make it possible for delivery for commercial vehicles so that those businesses can be served and prioritized. And then you use the mobility lanes and the tree space to act as a buffer for more parklets, more plazas, so the businesses actually get supported. Uh, but so let's just go back to the original point there. During rush hour, those extra lanes would be needed anyway. You're not parking there uh, during rush hour. I mean, those aren't aren't those late lanes needed just to move goods and services and people at that time? Well, they certainly haven't been being used for the last two and a half years. Um, city's own assessment on it says that the use of Broadway has been reduced by at least fifteen percent over the course of the last two years uh, as a consequence of construction. It has not resulted in substantial traffic jams. Their projection on the Broadway uh, line extension to the Millennium Line is a 15% reduction in total on top of that of car usage. And I would remind you, Jazz, I'm sure you remember, um, when the Canada Line extension came in, Ministry of Transportation, City of Vancouver, said we'd see a 10% reduction in bridge crossing. Uh, And what ended up happening was over 30%. And so we had an oversubscription to the subway line when that came in, a massive collapse in drivership. And I expect that we'll see the same thing happen along the Broadway corridor, which is why we need to plan for this. And especially considering the fact that council just voted down the pace of change policy that you've covered in depth on your show over the course of the last two weeks, um, which will mean that there will be room for thousands and thousands of new purpose-built rental units along with other housing options along this corridor. And those people will not be able um, to fit two cars per family along the Broadway corridor well, and drive on it, they need to have alternatives for safe mobility. What's wrong with 10th Avenue, though? Like, if, if you already have a line there, why do you need to have this conversation? I'll tell you what's wrong with 10th Avenue. My daughter just turned three. Uh, she was born a month before the pandemic, and she got a scooter, right? Yeah. Um, she's three years old. She's a toddler. She's done a great job learning uh, road safety, and she stops at every intersection and hops off and holds my hand across, right? Mm-hmm. But if I want my daughter to learn how to bike safely on a strider, if I want my daughter to be able to ride a bike um, in the city, I'm not going to be able to help her start doing that until she's 9, 10, 11 years old. Whereas if there's fully separated mobility lanes that have a substantive barrier and buffer from traffic, I can safely take her to spaces where that's the case and have her become a more active participant in, her, in our city at a much earlier age, which I think is better for everyone and in particular better for families. Uh, if you're a betting man, what's the chance of this happening? The bike, bicycle lanes on Broadway. I'm curious because this is, you know, sometimes these things were promised. But some of them, some of the folks that were elected did promise it, perhaps. Uh, but uh, there's a new reality now as well. People want things moving along, and and and, and parties sometimes have a broader, uh, you know, concerns they have to look at, and views change. So, if you're a betting man, what's the chance of a bicycle lane being added to Broadway in your mind right now, from what you see? Well, I guarantee you that there will be mobility lanes on Broadway someday. The question is whether or not Ken Sim and ABC Vancouver have the courage to do it today. And I would strongly encourage them to look at the lessons that have been learned in London and Paris, where we saw massive uptake in adoptions after um, removing cars from city centers and from adding over 300 kilometers of bike lanes in the case of Paris in less than a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And they saw the mode of transportation go from between 6 and 11%, depending on the arrondissement in Paris, 
of people riding bikes to uh, between 24 and 30% of people using bikes as their primary mode of transportation. We can have the exact same thing here. We should be modeling this on the high line. We should be focusing on the total transformation of Broadway Mm -hmm. because returning it to a car sewer with derelict commercial frontages is not building a better city for all Vancouver. Well, look forward to having you in the, st- in the studio again on this issue because I don't think it's going to go away. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Jeff. Have a great day. We move to the oil industry. Just a few weeks ago, that California governor, Gavin Newsom, called the oil industry the second most powerful force on earth, trailing only Mother Nature uh, in its ability to bend the elements, as they said, both physical and political to its will. Well, on Tuesday, Newsom signed a new law that gives state regulators the power to penalize oil companies for making too much money, the first of its kind in the U.S. It's the type of legislation, of course, the oil industry in the past might have had the legislative power to crush. But on Monday, the bill cleared the state assembly with only one Democrat voting against it. Joining me now to talk a little bit about oil prices and the energy transition is Peter McCartney, climate campaigner at the Wilderness Committee. Peter, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, on this uh, new, uh, I guess, piece of legislation that, of course, was signed on Tuesday by the governor in California. What do you think of it? Yeah, it's a good move. I think, uh, you know, oil companies are making record profits as life just gets more and more expensive for everyday working people. And so, uh, in this case, Governor Newsom is uh, striking t- striking some legislation to make them actually pay those profits back. Um, I, I also think it says a lot about, you know, this industry's power and uh, how, you know, like he said, one of the most powerful industries in the world. Um, there is actually politicians that are willing to stand up to them and I hope we can bring some of that energy from California here to British Columbia. Uh, and, you know, California is, I think, it's the eighth largest economy in the world. Uh, it is a dynamic economy with, a you know, a significant tech sector and many other places as well. But it also has a knock that it, you know, it's a place that you play a lot of tax as well. And people are moving out of California to a certain degree as well. What do you say to the argument that, look, the energy transition uh, took 75 to 100 years where oil surpassed coal, certainly the energy transition today, we hope, is a lot faster. There will be fits and starts or where one technology will do very well and, and perhaps we'll move to another technology, whether it be electricity, solar, hydrogen, whatever it may be. But along the way that these fossil fuels that we are using also lead to a significant amount of taxes for government uh, as well, provincially, uh, in the case of, of Alberta when it comes to oil, natural gas, in the case of British Columbia, and even more so with our LNG development. And federally, uh, it leads to significant amount of tax dollars in regards to transfers to auto, which always come back to us, and health transfers, and, and many other wonderful system, uh, wonderful programs that we all want. What do you say to the argument that we cannot just, just cut off fossil fuel uh, industry that quickly because we need that tax base? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that um, oil and gas resource revenue brings in some money. I think it's a lot less than most people expect. Um, But the truth is, other countries around the world have figured out how to have social programs and build hospitals and run schools um, without, you know, relying on the export of a product that is fueling the climate crisis and the disasters that we've seen in our communities all over the world and here in BC in the last few years. And so at the same time as we're, you know, getting tax revenue from oil and gas, uh, we are also paying massive costs 
billions of dollars um, for the consequences of that, of the pollution that they are putting into the atmosphere. Uh, in this case, do you think we can afford to walk away? Oil is predominantly Alberta, although we have some, uh, you know, extracted here, but it's very small. Um, but when we talk about British Columbia, a lot of it focuses in and around LNG, liquefied natural gas. Uh, we've got a massive plant being built, the largest private sector investment in the history of this province and this country with the LNG Canada project. We just had Cedar LNG approved. We have the Fortis project uh, in Delta there. Uh, there's potential for other smaller projects, uh, wood fiber, another one near uh, in Squamish as well, and potentially others. Um, do you think that should still be allowed? Uh, I mean, based on this, they want to uh, extract profits. They're not shutting down those industries. Uh, yet here in British Columbia, we continue to focus on not allowing fossil fuel industry to continue to grow and evolve and change. Uh, do you think that's still the right way to go? that British Columbia is not doing that, considering uh, the approvals of these LNG uh, fracked gas projects. Um, but that is exactly what scientists are telling us has to happen in order for us to limit global warming to safe levels. Um, in order for that to happen, we have to not be uh, burning oil and gas in 2050, and the sooner that day comes, the better. So approving these new facilities for decades to come is either going to cause us to miss the commitments that we have made as a province and as a species mm-hmm. um, to limit global warming, or it's basically betting uh, against our ability to do that, and they're going to be economic disasters. I mean, if we build LNG Canada, and then 10 years from now it has to shut down, that's, that's a whole lot of jobs, that's a whole lot of wasted investment, um, and that's a whole lot of economic turmoil that is not necessary and so we should be looking at you know the clean industries of the future there's lots of work to be done to solve the climate crisis and there's um there's plenty that people can do uh in order to actually get to work and generate economic prosperity in solving the climate crisis instead of making it worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm very curious. Uh, There are those who say, look, we need greater investment in uh, LNG, in oil, and to really, uh, you know, develop those industries cleaner and better than other nations and use those tax dollars uh, for vital programs. And others say, look, as you say, let's make that uh, jump as quickly as possible and attract as much investment in the green economy as we possibly can. I'm curious as to where you sit. Uh, are you optimistic in our ability to hit those targets when it comes to climate and in regards to the commitment that we've made already? Not if we keep approving these uh, liquefied natural gas plants that only increase the amount of fracking we are doing in northeastern British Columbia. Um, we are not on track to meet our climate commitments right now. And that should scare everyone who now knows what it feels like to live through a 45-degree heat wave in Metro Vancouver. Um This is a crisis, and you don't respond to a crisis by making it harder for you to uh, to do the things that will solve it. And so, you know, every LNG terminal we build, every ten thousand fracking wells uh, we have to drill in northeastern BC just takes us further away from the uh, world where we are actually able to keep our families and our communities safe from the climate disasters that uh, the pollution from oil and gas has inflicted upon us. Peter, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.